Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. interviewed New York Times bestseller and phenomenal author Caroline Mace and in that interview she shared something with me that I've never forgotten. She said our greatest suffering comes from our attachment to our fantasies. Our greatest suffering comes from our attachment to our fantasies. I thought that was a really appropriate way to introduce this really beautiful and emotional interview. In this podcast, I'm speaking with Annie Love, mama and life coach, who some of you may know, again, from social media. Annie says herself that she went into motherhood with a fairy tale in mind, believing it would be a certain way. Ever since she was a little girl, all she wanted was to be a mum. And then what unfolded over the coming years is more than most of us would ever have to endure. Her third child was born with Down syndrome and then her eldest child became very ill. The story that you're about to hear is one that is so filled with hope and resilience It is truly inspiring. You might notice that halfway through, I'm trying to hold back the tears. Annie's insight into what we really need to be able to let go of that fairy tale and accept the beauty of what is unfolding in our life is so important. Our greatest struggles come from thinking it needs to be a certain way. And if it doesn't turn out that way, then it's wrong. And it's not. I am honoured to be able to share Annie Love's story with you. about what it means to be a mother and a woman in this day and age. I'm Amy Taylor-Cabaz, author, mama and former journalist. 
After spending 15 years chasing news and burning myself out trying to be Superwoman, I realised that I was chasing a dream that no longer served me, and since then have dedicated myself to understanding the transition that we go through as women when our whole identity shifts with motherhood. Every week, I will bring you the very best insights and inspiration I can find to help us all change the way we feel about this time in our lives and create a movement that allows us to honour motherhood differently. Annie, thank you for joining the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really lovely to reconnect with you. We've been social media buddies for many years. You actually were featured on my old website when Happy Mama featured a lot of stories of mothers around the world. And now we get to reconnect now on the podcast and really share your story of Oh, resilience, I think is a good word to describe you. It is a good word. It is a very good word for you and your family to share your resilience and also, I guess, the the hope and the joy that can come out of really hard times. So, as I said, I'm really grateful you're here today. So let's start from the very beginning, (laughs) as they say. Uh, Tell us about your entry into motherhood, Um, and what happened when motherhood arrived on your doorstep? I was the kid who always dreamed about being a mum. I just, um, I think my husband said to me recently that he thinks that I became a mum in my head by the time I was about five. Oh, how beautiful. Um, I had, I was always mothering my dolls. I had a baby names book. Uh, I would ask my neighbours to go out when I was a teenager so that I could look after their children. I just loved being with kids. And Ben and I, my husband and I, were probably married for about five years before we were really ready um, to launch into parenthood. And we started trying for a family and found out we were pregnant a few months later. Um, But when we reached the point of getting to that very first appointment uh, with the obstetrician where we were ready to see that baby, um, which was about, I think, nine and a half weeks, we got there and there was no heartbeat. And um, I I was devastated. It was such a dark time for me. Um, But we were really lucky. And, you know, four months later, um, I was pregnant again. But it wasn't exactly the fairy tale, you know, when you go to that very first appointment and you're so excited after waiting years and years to become that mum and, you know, there's that, that devastation of finding out that the baby wasn't alive. Um, but we, yeah, we were really lucky. We were pregnant again within about four months and we had our first son, Sam. Uh, and then we had his brother Charlie 21 months later which was mm-hmm. chaotic and hard <laughs> and exhausting but um, but exactly where I wanted to be as a mum mm. and we knew we wanted another baby but I, I think that having a baby 21 months apart uh, it was exhausting and I was like yeah we'll, we'll hold off a little bit longer this time um, but the universe had other plans mm. and 
we found out we would, were pregnant again and that we would be having three kids in under four years, which, oh, wow. you know, was intense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were a little bit nervous. Uh, and then we went along to our 12-week scan um, and discovered that we had a 1 in 14 chance of our baby having Down syndrome. Wow. And, again, not in the fairy tale, not in the brochure. Yeah. Um, and we went through a really hard time of trying to decide what the next steps would be and we made the decision that our baby would be loved and wanted you know, however many chromosomes it came with. Um, But we were really struggling with the not knowing and we didn't want to wait it out until the baby was born. So we decided to have some prenatal testing and around the five-month mark um, and discovered that uh, our baby did, in fact, have Down syndrome. And it was a really tough time in our marriage. I don't think we were very good at... You know, we were both in that place of knew we were having this baby, but, you know, it it was not society's um, Hmm. idea of this perfectly healthy baby that everybody wants and dreams of. And we weren't very good at leaning into each other and there was a lot of silence between us over those next few months. But I think slowly we grieved that baby we thought we should have been having and we started to look forward to the baby that we were having. And in March of 2012, our third son arrived um, and his name was Nicholas and he is the absolute light of our lives. You know, as many chromosomes as he had, um, he was absolutely gorgeous and he... I'd say that he was the portal to my greatest life lesson, which was that when you're going through darkness, there's always a light on the other side, even if the landscape's different to how you expected it to look. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I I never could have imagined actually what he would bring to our lives. Um, and, yeah, and, and to be completely honest, life with a baby with Down syndrome was pretty normal. Um, it was, you know, chaotic having three boys under four and busy and tiring, but it was, you know, as you would expect, pretty normal. Um, and then 18 months later, I think it was, um, our eldest son, Sam, was five at the time and through probably five weeks of testing for various little bits and pieces that were going on with him, um, we discovered that he had acute lymphoblastic leukemia, so ALL, as it's commonly known. Um, so we were launched into this new normal and in the thick of navigating chemotherapy and hospital visits for this five-year-old while we still had a three, three-year-old and an 18-month-old at home, I remember saying the quote, um, go in the direction of your dreams, live the life you imagined. And I was like, Mm -hmm. you know, this is not what I imagined it was going to be like being a mum. 
Um, and I imagine in that moment, there's almost anger at those little sayings. Like, yeah, that, <sighs> you know, that even makes me angry for you. I would love to go in the direction of my dreams, for God's sakes. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's sort absolutely. of that feeling. So what, what do you do with that when, when the reality of what you're living with is so far from that think positive and you get everything you want in mm. life? How do you sit with that? I think um, going through the process of having a prenatal diagnosis and realising that, you know, that things did turn out okay, that we, um, we would deliver this beautiful gift of a child, even if he wasn't considered, you know, perfect by everybody else's standards. Um, I think we learn a lot of valuable lessons through that time. And Ben and I learnt to lean into each other and really... We just decided we need to embrace this new normal and to take one day at a time because that's all we really, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen in the future and all you can, you know, all we can do is be in that in that day together. Um, so, yeah, we just decided we had to embrace it and we had to find the gifts in it and we had to ask for help where we needed it and we just had to live each moment at a time. It sounds like when you said after the official diagnosis, the confirmation and that space opened up between you and Ben, you really sort of um, didn't know how to lean into each other. It was like you both had to do your grieving of the fairy tale yourselves separately and then you could come back together. In hindsight, do you feel that's what was happening? You kind of both had to process it a little bit and then you could be together? Yeah, absolutely, mm. yeah. I think and that's that... important, isn't it, to acknowledge that sometimes we crave that connection, we want to lean on others, but sometimes there's a process that needs to be gone through first. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, grief, as we learnt later, was it is so individual and we all process things in different ways. So it was trying to learn that balance between processing the grief individually and, and still being together as much as we could. Mm. But this was not the end of, of your story, of your family's no. story, was it? It wasn't. So Sam's treatment um, for leukaemia was three years long. And um, basically about six months before he was due to finish treatment, um, Nicholas, who was four at the time, uh, got really sick over the course of a couple of weeks and we were back and forward with the GP. And we... One particular day where I thought he had turned the corner... But then a few things changed and Ben and I made the decision one night to go up to the hospital with him. And, you know, obviously at the hospital we were well familiar with by that stage, having gone through um, treatment with Sam. And we weren't particularly worried that night, but we thought we should probably get him checked out. So I took him up and um, a few hours later, after we'd been seen by various people, we... I called Ben and I said, look, he's being admitted. You know, he's got some sort of infection in his throat and we um, just need to be admitted to have any um, antibiotics through IV and we'll, we should be home in 24 hours. So you go to bed, I'll give you an update in the morning. Um, and over the next six hours, he declined very rapidly and ended up in ICU. Uh, we discovered... 
over the course of those, you know, in the next 24 hours that he also had leukaemia. Um, wow. And I just, yeah, I just, I remember seeing his oncologist, um, who was Sam's oncologist, who knew us very well and was much more like a friend those days, and just saying to her, I just can't do this again. And she just put her arm around me and she said, you can and we will. And she had tears in her eyes as well. Um, but basically over the next three weeks, he battled, uh, you know, so many different infections uh, and there were points where we thought he was getting better and there were points where things were kind of plateauing. Uh, and then towards the end, uh, we had a very hard conversation with some doctors who said he was facing, you know, four different life-threatening conditions and he was holding his own, but if anything changed, um, that things weren't looking great. And um, unfortunately, there was another uh, battle that he had to face, and he died three weeks after going into ICU. Uh, and, yeah, we didn't get to take our baby boy home as we just assumed we would, you know. You just show up every day and face the different things that turn up and think, yep, today, you know, tomorrow it's going to be better. And, um, yeah, so we were, you know, we found ourselves in that newest new normal, which was without our four-year-old and navigating grief while also trying to be present to parents to a six- and eight-year-old. So... <sighs> I'll try and say this without crying because I was really <laughs> like, it's right in my throat, Annie. What that oncologist said to you, I feel like that's that's what everybody needs to hear in these moments where you think to yourself, I can't do this again or mm -hmm. I can't do this. And you need someone there with their arm around you saying, yes, you can and we will. My goodness, what a gift those words were. And is it mm. that type of thing that you have to keep coming back to to get through everything that you've been through? Yeah. So yeah. How do you do that? <laughs> uh, a lot of deep breathing. Mm. <laughs> um, look, I think what we came back to and what we always try to come back to is finding the gifts in it. And that seems a really probably bizarre thing to say when you've lost a child because, you know, what gifts can you find in that? Um, but we really tried to just feel all the emotions mm. and to honour what we needed in every single moment. Um we tried to be really present for the boys and uh, we played a lot of Lego and I'm sure my head wasn't always in it at the time, but, you know, we really tried to sit with them and to be with them and we talked a lot about Nicholas and, you know, we, we still do. We just, you know, little moments um, where we, we try to imagine what he would have said or we talked about a funny story or a memory we have of him. Um, but we always knew after losing Nicholas that we needed to live 
as he had lived, which was completely full of joy and making the most of every moment. Mm. And that's really helped me because, you know, uh, you know, obviously as a ghost generalisation, you know, lots of people talk about how people with Down syndrome are happy all the time, which is untrue, of course. <laughs> um, but in comparison to the rest of us, though. Yeah, but I think what probably what is true and consistent is that they are very present to the moment that they're in mm. and, um, and that in itself can bring joy. So we just, we knew that, to carry on Nicholas's legacy of love, we really needed to be present and joyful and make the most of this life that we are absolutely privileged to live. Um, and not everyone gets that. So one of the things that I did do probably, I think it was probably around the first anniversary of his death was to ask other people. And, you know, I think at that stage I had... Um, I had started a Facebook page that I often shared videos of Nicholas. So there were a lot of people, I think, who grieved his loss as well alongside us. And um, I asked people if they would share with us what the gifts they had received, not just through his life but through his death. And we got hundreds of messages and emails from people all over the world. Um, and it, it was just such a balm to a, a grieving mother's heart to know that in four very short years, I think Nicholas had impacted more people than probably some people do in a lifetime. Um, and that was really beautiful to be able to read all of those messages of love. Wow. And just so everybody listening can know, uh, how is Sam's health now? Sam is an absolutely thriving, healthy and somewhat annoying 12-year-old. <laughs> uh, he's, he's such a beautiful kid, you know, and I they've both been through so much and they are both very different, Sam and Charlie. Um, but, yeah, Sam's doing really well. He is he still has regular checkups at the hospital, but we are out to about uh, six months apart now. So, yeah, wow. we've been really lucky that he hasn't had any sort of consequences of ill effects of the treatment that he was on and he's been really well since so that's been really good so to finish up here's a big question for you Annie (laughs) (laughs) we really wanted to focus on how that fairy tale we think motherhood is going to be doesn't eventuate of course it doesn't the fairy tale never exists and I know you have been through more than most in your experience of motherhood but I wonder now how you feel looking back. Do you feel in a way it's the story you were meant to have? Do you feel in a way it's maybe not the fairy tale, but the tale of motherhood and love and resilience that you were meant to have? I absolutely do feel like it's the fairy, or well, not the fairy tale, but the story I was meant to have. And I feel like... You know, I think probably by clinging to that fairy tale, we do ourselves a disservice because it's through the it's through the hard bits and the challenges that we find that true richness in life. And you know, as hard as it is to say, I would do it all over again. 
in order to know Nicholas for that those four short years. Um, and I, yeah, I absolutely believe that it was it was the story we were meant to have. Yeah, and in a way, you've got this beautiful. Uh, I don't want to say ending because it's not ended, but this beautiful no. outcome of, as you've said, you've learned so much from him. Your boys have, your husband has, so many of us have. I remember following it all on Instagram those years ago as well. There's been so many gifts from it. And I think, yeah, if we could all take anything from this, it is both our attachment to the fairy tale makes it harder mm. and also to if you're going through one of those really hard times to try and find someone in your life that can stand next to you and say, yes, you can do this and we will because that's what we really need around us in those moments. Oh, absolutely. And just being able to lean into that village, you know, that support network that we have around us, really important. Amazing. Thank you so much. Your story is so inspiring and beautiful and important, Annie. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Amy. I have been so blessed over the years to speak with so many different mamas from around the world. Mamas who show me every day what strength looks like. Annie is without doubt one of those women. Her ah, compassion, love, strength, resilience is something I am in awe of. And after this interview, it really helped me remember what was important. You can follow along Annie's story, look at her work now as a life coach and learn from her and her experiences at mamalove.com and you can find the links to her work in the show notes. For those of you who are going through a hard time right now, just know you can do it. We will do it. Until next week, Satnam. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.